Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Sir Paul Nurse, Director of the Francis Crick Institute, former president of the Royal Society, former president of the Rockefeller over in New York, and Nobel Prize winner in 2001 in physiology or medicine. This is an amazing interview. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York and on the microscopy today, I'm joined by Sir Paul Nurse from the Francis Crick Institute. Paul, how are you today? I'm okay, Peter, do call me Paul. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Actually, director of the Francis Crick Institute, former president of the Royal Society, Nobel winner in 2001 in physiology or medicine, former president, president, I think, wasn't it, of the Rockefeller. That's a pretty long list. And I think even over 60 honorary degrees. Yes, yes, all of that's true. It sounds as if I can't keep a job, though, with all the different jobs I've had. <laughs> oh, dear, excuse me. Uh, that, that is quite a, quite a CV. Which job's been your favourite? I liked the Royal Society because it was very wide um, in the um, experience and what you had to do. I liked the Crick because I started it afresh and so could craft it in a way that I liked. And I liked Rockefeller University in New York because it was so different because it was in New York. So um, I think that's uh, my top three. Okay. And obviously, obviously, the American culture can be very different to the UK science culture. Uh, did you try and bring some of that back with you or did you leave that behind and accept the UK way of working, that mindset? Well, it is a very interesting question, Peter, because actually I took something to Rockefeller from here and I brought something back from the US um, uh, back to the UK. So I um, it was it worked in both directions. I learned something from the US. It made me think more about the importance of the individual scientist who tends to be the center of attention in the US. It's a more of a personality cult, which I wasn't so keen on, but I did more fully recognize that um, it is important to um, re- remember always and to support the fact that you do have um, excellent people and they do need to be looked after. But what goes, what's less good in that US system is Uh, much less, in my view, of a feeling of community and working together, which we have in Europe, in the UK in particular. And so I I put into the Rockefeller a bit more working together and not just rescue, not just sort of worshipping the hero um, scientists. And um, I brought back this notion that individual scientists um, can be very special and have to be recognised as such. So I, I think I first met you when you were at the uh, research institute before before Crick itself. When did you have the idea of setting up the whole new Crick Institute? It was I, I remember because it, uh, it didn't go anywhere. It was around two thousand. Um, I was then um, I just essentially formed Cancer Research UK, merging two um, research charities: the old ICRF and the old CRC. 
and um, we had in the um, ICRF and then CIUK a couple of institutes, the buildings of which were really quite old, one in Lincoln's Inn Fields in central London, put up in the 1950s, a second one in um, South Mims, Clare Hall, put up in the 1970s, early 80s, but rather jerry-built. And they were both looking very tired, and South Mims was a bit isolated. And then the MRC had an institute, National Institute of Medical Research, on top of the hill in Mill Hill in London. And that's a 1940s building and was also very tired. So everybody was a bit worried about the real estate. And I had the idea, which was mad, of putting all three together in the Millennium Dome, which you may remember nobody knew what to do with after the um, 2000. And I went round saying, should we think about this, all moving to Greenwich? And quite rightly, I was told this is barking mad and we shouldn't do it, And as indeed it was, because how on earth could you turn uh, the Millennium Dome into a sensible institute? You just have to erase it and start again. And so it was forgotten, um, quite rightly, until... Um, 2007, when I was working in New York in Rockefeller, um, and uh, Keith Peters, who was acting head of the National Institute of Medical Research, phoned me, and this idea rose up again of putting the institutes together because the MRC had got the idea that they should close Mill Hill, uh, significantly um, reduce its size, and move it into UCL as a translational institute. And this wasn't um, such a brilliant idea, really, because all the researchers, most of them in Mill Hill, were not doing translational clinical work. Uh, it would have meant um, half to three quarters losing their jobs anyway, so it would have been a very sour transition. And the space they were moving into was um, an old hospital and um, probably not fit for purpose. So that then led to the idea, could we find another site? And Keith um, had identified a site which is where we are, um, just north of the British Library. It belonged to um, the British Library and was a, a government um, a, a land. And um, I ended up going to um, see Gordon Brown, who was then the Prime Minister, and asking for the site and for the budding consortium that involved the MRC, CIUK, where there was a lot of support from the yep. chief executives there, um, and also from UCL, who were involved because of the previous plan. And this worked. We were given the site, it was a lot of money, 75 million, but half the price that it was probably worth. And that was really the birth of um, the Crick in about 2008. And it took a lot of work to get everybody on board. I wanted not just UCL, but the two other great London universities, Imperial and King's College to be involved. And that took a year or two of negotiation because not everybody was happy with that change. I also wanted the welcome involved. So we had the three main funders of biomedical research um, and they came in um, at a lower level than the other two. But eventually we came in with six founders, three universities and three um, funders and started the serious planning about 2010 when I moved back to the UK to become president of the Royal Society. And it's a, a lot of work and only came to full fruition when we moved into the building in 2017 with all the people here um, in the first months of 2017. So we've been going about four to five years. I say, so I, I, it's an awesome project. I think it's an inspiring building. I, I love visiting it. Uh, it, it. It is brilliant. I think the idea of bringing it all together is utterly brilliant too. 
if you could change anything, would you change anything about it? Well, I think the the most difficult thing, it, it, and it probably would have been most difficult, whatever we'd have done, was getting six different organisations working together. There is actually a power in that because if one of the organisations gets a bit difficult, which of course can happen in these situations, you have others at a senior level that can provide corrective action. And so there is a certain resilience as a consequence of that. But getting six organisations to work together means they've all got to agree on something. And that can be quite difficult. The three universities in particular, universities have government structures which are often where authority and power is devolved out further down the organization. So you might agree something with the vice chancellor and then you talk to a departmental head and they just say, well, that wasn't agreed with me and you have to go back again. Or if you agree that with those two, then you want to do something with students, you'll go to the office of, of students and they say, well, that wasn't agreed with me. And you spend a lot of time running around trying to get things to work. That is gradually getting better as, uh, as everybody gets used to the idea that got, they all have to work together and we solve many of the problems. But that was probably the biggest difficulty. And you asked, what would I change? I couldn't change anything. I just wish that had been a bit of an easier passage. Easier ride. So is the building big enough? I don't think it can get very much bigger than what it is and still operate in the way that we operate. Uh, I mean, that is an interesting question. I, I wanted it to be big um, so that we could be truly multidisciplinary and wouldn't have to focus on a particular area. If you take a, imagine how most institutes arise. They, 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 this is very big. We have, you know, up to 1500 scientists here. Okay, so this is large, uh, 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 around 100 groups in total, 120 groups. And if you have... Um, a typical institute, it'll be, let's say, an institute for stem cells, okay? Yeah. It'll probably be 10 groups with um, uh, about 100 people, 120 people. Now, the problem there is that it can only be a stem cell institute because you need a critical mass there to get it to work. And the, it runs the danger of becoming static because uh, it's okay for five years. Ten years, it may no longer be quite what you is cutting edge in different direction. Come thirty years, it's probably redundant and uh, and no longer completely relevant. I'm not knocking stem cells. I'm only giving it as a. a yeah. Oh no, I know, I know. <laughs> and what I wanted with the crick was the ability to essentially hire across the board anybody who was interesting and excellent, and let the uh, let the program the programmatic focus be driven bottom up rather than top down, which is what happens if you have a stem cell institute. Now, this is alien to particularly uh, research funding um, administrators because they always want to say, we're going to solve this problem. It's top down and you're going to, and then you come back and say, we need to solve these four problems. I need groups in this and so on. And it's generally decisions being made by elderly scientists in committees, which are mostly rather obvious and certainly not cutting edge. My philosophy was to make it big enough that we could hire very widely and let the agenda in terms of programmatic activity get driven bottom up, which is much more likely to be in front of the curve than behind the curve. But it is a different way of working compared with most ways that these sorts of things 
are set up. And that's also been a difficult message to communicate because people, the, the leadership of different um, funding organisations and so on can come here and say, well, you know, this isn't operating the way that we're used to. And they keep trying to evaluate us on something that we are not. And one of the reasons it's worked is exactly this structure, by the way. <clears throat> Which is, no, I'm a big, big fan, big supporter of that type of structure as well, because it does give that nimbleness, that flexibility to grow and expand and contract as the trends of science change. Uh, you know, as you say, they will burn themselves out uh, well, to a degree it, and then resurrect as suddenly a new technology opens it back up again or something else. It's we're a resurrection institute. We constantly are rejuvenating. And because uh, the second thing I didn't mention is that um, we had a shift of demographic to more junior um, early career group leaders. <clears throat> we take them for a career period of 12 years and then we help them move somewhere else. Now, th there's a couple of reasons for doing it. Giving, pe giving people a, a, a 10, 12 year period is quite a lot of stability, quite a lot of um, commitment to them. You know, most of the fellowships people get are five years and they're already worrying about what they're going to do after three years. And that's no situation for boldness in what you do. When we hire somebody, we back them and we back them for 12 years. We review them to check that things are sort of OK, but our commitment is to them. And they come, they're ambitious. They don't worry about the fact that, that uh, they can't stay because they are ambitious and, and realise it's a career stage and they have a good support during that period. Then we help them go somewhere else, help them. We'll give them money to start up to go somewhere else. This is unheard of. Well, I didn't know that bit. Yeah, no, of course it is. And the notion was, not of course it is, I mean, that is how it is. Yep. And the reason we do that is that, um, so, you know, when they stop funding, we'll say, well, we can fund you for another year or two. You spend half your time in one place or whatever. Um, and we tailor it to what they, they want. Um, and then, you see, we support the, the research endeavour particularly in the UK, but of course some people go other places. And this is the way, um, which is also different to an institute. So if you work in most institutes, or for that matter universities, people hang on to their best people like grim death. They don't want them to go because I've got to satisfy the ref or the next QQR. Yep. We say, you've spent 10, 12 years, you're brilliant, you've done well, as many we hope will, we'll help you go somewhere else and seed and populate institutions, universities, around the country as well as around the world that sets up a network something else completely different from the way most places would work which of course as you said earlier though, that also means that you can always remain nimble and you can always be changing and resurrecting because as people go away with their excellence you bring in where the latest fact otherwise you do get stuck exactly so you have. sorry to interrupt you put those two things together and you have a very agile structure where you turn over um, maybe two thirds or three quarters of your staff every 10 to 12 years, or maybe even less. And you rejuvenate with um, new people with new interests that follow the new um, areas that are emerging. And the people you export are in established areas and can set those up in other research institutions. So it's a different model from how nearly anywhere else works. So the closest model I can think is EMBL, uh, where you have a nine year position and and then go on, having made your name, establish yourself, you take that off with you. Uh, what about the core facilities there? Because I presume they're not under the same 12-year contract, or, or am I wrong? Well, first of all, Emble, I should say I, I'm chair of the 
scientific advisory committee at EMBO, and I've sat for 18 years on and off on their uh, advisory committee. So I should have said I stole that part of the idea completely from EMBO. The only difference being that I extended it somewhat because I noticed that EMBO, it was still a little bit on the short side and the 12 year period is, is a better one. Now, our technical cause is another feature which is found in very good institutes where you have good high quality centralized cores I mean, let's take my, like microscopy, yeah. something that might be of interest to you, of course. And the, um, uh, the, what you have there is um, high quality centralized instruments, which are looked after who people know what they're doing. And if you now map that out across, and um, we've got 18 such technical cores in all sorts of areas, it means I come in here with limited technical skills in a lot of these areas, but it's extremely easy for me to get support and to be um, to do experiments that involve those technical cores. So they are critical. But now you ask the question, well, what about continuity in those cores? Well, one thing I didn't say about the group leaders is we don't turn over everybody. Yep. Um, we have and we don't I don't know what the sweet spot is, but let's say two thirds, three quarters early career group leaders. And we have one third quarter um on rolling tenure like i am every five years at the, at the moment and we provide continuity and stability our job is also to um, help support the um, early career group leaders and if we now turn to the stps um there's some similarities we do have senior people running them we also have teams in there and we're training those and already exporting them to run their own cause in other institutions. So it's part of the Crick's wish to support the whole UK biomedical research endeavour through training and export. I'm going to try and think. I don't think we've imported anyone yet from your labs. I think we've, we've had a student come through to your labs, but we haven't. But we'll get them back one day. Maybe that's just the best way uh, to think about it. So on the technician front, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Here you are, as we said earlier, stellar career, but you at one point were a technician in lab as well. I was because I couldn't get into university. Um, this is um, now a long time ago, because look at the color of my hair. Um, but in the um, late 60s or mid to late 60s, uh, you needed to what was called matriculate to get into any university. And the matriculation required um, a set of O levels, which are a bit similar to GCSEs today, um, and you needed to have certain categories of those examinations. It's an examination you'd sit when you were 16, usually, um, to make sure that you had a, a, a sort of general education. So you'd need English, maths, um, and, uh, um, and a foreign language, which was my problem. And what happened to me is I had actually pretty good A levels. I sat them one year early, even. So by 17, I had um, uh, very good A levels that would have could get me into any university in the UK, but I didn't have an O level in a foreign language. And I kept failing my um, any attempts to do it. My school, I did um, Latin, Greek and French. I was appalling at Latin and Greek and they wouldn't even let me sit the examination. And I managed to sit French O level six times and fail it six times, which is <laughs> I think a world record for failures. Um, and um, this meant I couldn't get a place in any university. So I was offered conditional offers to everywhere I applied to, which were some of the greatest universities 
the land, Oxford, for example, and um, it was all conditional no level fringe, which I failed to get. So I, I was, I had to, I left school, seventeen, and I worked as a technician, not knowing what to do, and I worked in um, a offshoot of the Guinness Brewery in Park Royal, which is in West London, um, no longer a brewery there, um, but there was then. And they had a startup company in biotech, what we would call biotech today. And I spent a year there, um, right next to the brewery. And um, I assumed that I would have a, a career as a technician. Um, but actually, the University of Birmingham, which is where I ended up going, looked at I don't know what the head of department of genetics was looking at, but um, he was looking at some of the students they'd rejected and came across me and asked to see me. This is the head of department to see a failed undergraduate. His name was Professor Jinx. And I went up on my motorbike from London to Birmingham. He spent an hour interviewing me. I spent half a day looking around the department being interviewed. And they, um, at the end of it said, we'd like you to come here and we'll fix his O-level French. I'll take it to Senate and get a clearance. Senate cleared me, but do you know what they said? They said, we'll let you come, but you'll have to sit a foreign language in your first year at university. So I was allowed in, but I had to do French. Now, at a very low level, O-level, this is university. Yep. They gave me, this is impossible to happen today, what the story I'm going to tell you. They gave me, the most junior lecturer in the department and we met in the October uh, the beginning of the term maybe September and I remember that it's a very entertaining conversation he said Paul you don't want to be here and I don't want to be here he said um you I've got to give you an examination at the end of this year and it'll be an examination of translating scientific French into English about a third of the words will be English anyway because it's um scientific yeah. French I'm allowed to let you take any books into the um, into the exam um, that I think are appropriate, and I'll allow you to take a dictionary into that um, examination. And as long as you put the words in the right order as according to the work, I will pass you. Not well, but I will pass you. And I don't think we need to meet again now. Oh, wow. So I even got out of that one, too. Couldn't happen today, though, I'm sure. Good, good on Birmingham, that's right. That's, that's, I, I, I'm a Brummie uh, by nature. Uh, oh, right. Well, I'm been, I've been constantly um, thankful for, for Birmingham and Birmingham University in, in particular. Uh, city's changed a lot since then as well, though. So, it's, uh, mind you, that, that was back in the 70s, wasn't it, I think? For 60, the late 60, days. 67, I went there, yeah. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> so... Uh, so <laughs> For the technicians, uh, you know, you obviously appreciate the technical role, but you've also set up stable and supported the technical careers and the importance of technicians in research, uh, which I think is greatly appreciated. I think you saw that over at Rockefeller as well. And, and Alison North says hello, by the way. Okay. Uh, but I, I think it is tremendous the support and the need of core facilities, that expertise. And as you said, bringing in, you can come into Crick and you've got all that expertise at hand. Just going back to the crick itself, how stressful was it? How stressful is it still? Because actually, now it's up and running. It doesn't stop, does it? It doesn't <laughs> stop. I mean, um, at the beginning, we at the beginning we had to merge three research institutes and one um, um, a, a, a research administration, which was in a different place altogether. 
And these were all different cultures. So that was a pretty big, I mean, mergers often fail because of things of that sort. And, and this one worked. We had to transfer all the equipment and so on. We didn't get new equipment in the building. We just transferred what we had. We had to move in um, many thousands. Oh, I mean, 130,000, I think, mouse cages in here, uh, for example. And everything, um, all the freezers and so on. This was a major logistical exercise. Now, to do it, um, the MRC, who, of course, one of the bodies, strongly proposed that we should use uh, project managers and I was a bit dubious. I didn't think that was necessary, really. I was totally wrong, as I'm so often am, by the way. And um, we, but I did put it in place. And uh, the the project managers were incredibly um, important because they're used to this sort of thing. Whereas we're, I'd be an amateur. I mean, I've got some common sense, but I'm, you know, that, that was not enough. And so we did move in here and move in here fast. And the majority of scientists were up and running within weeks, um, which was quite an achievement. Not quite all. We had a few um, things that didn't work so well. So that was a lot of work. Then we had to set up the recruitment, which when I told you was completely open, that isn't how the founding institutes had generally worked. So put together a, a, a massive search committee to cross all areas, uh, worked with the um, research director I have here, Richard Treisman, who was from one of the yep. institutes. Um, Jim Smith was involved too for a bit, but they went off to the welcome. And uh, um, just setting up that recruitment, because we would have for every position we advertise 300 applicants. Uh, I mean, just, uh, just completely uh, unbelievable. Our graduate program is like that. Uh, we get 1,500 applicants each year of potential PhD students for 40 posts, 40 places. So it's nearly 40 to one. I, it's, I've never seen anywhere in America or anywhere else with, that, with those numbers. So what am I saying? There were a lot of new practices that had to be put in place. We made lots of mistakes and we had to get through them. But now we're running smoothly. You could say the workload is a little, um, a, a little reduced because it's not all change. But you now mustn't get complacent. You, you, you've got to keep um, keep maintaining the drive and the standards that you're trying to apply. And it is a bit exhausting because you just have to keep going. Otherwise, it, once you lose that drive and enthusiasm, it ceases to be um, quite so special as I think it um, it probably is. Now, as it happens this last year, I've been involved in the major five-year review of our whole institute because we've been going. It's the third major review I've had already. I mean, they do review me an awful lot. Yeah. This review was, was very heavy, 5,000 pages we had to produce for our three funders. And I mean, um, excessive in my view, but um, that's what we did. It's gone very well, so I'm very pleased with that. We've got the maximum scores um, for the institute overall. Um, so, uh, and I'm awaiting the outcome. In fact, this very day, I'm waiting to get the uh, the formal outcome of that. I've got the informal one. Uh, and um, But that's another, if you said, stress that's carrying on, because um, all of these things just keep going all the time. So what do you do to de-stress? What do you do at home? What, what What's your hobbies? Mm. Well, I've had several hobbies. Uh, one or two of them, I, I'm sort of doing less I, I used to be um not a mountain climber but certainly a mountain walker so in i worked in edinburgh 
for uh, seven years, did a lot of mountain walking there and the Lake District as well and so on. Haven't done that so much in recent years. Perhaps more exotically, I'm a pilot um, and fly um, both gliders and aeroplanes. Um, I'm a probably, I've been a glider pilot since I was 16, actually. So for, uh, for a very, very long time, I still do fly gliders, but not so often these days. And uh, flown um, in Scotland, in East Anglia, in um, Oxfordshire, but also in the um, Alps and in the um, Pyrenees as well. So mountain soaring. So that's one thing I do to relax, because I can tell you when you're up there flying only 10 metres away from a rock face, you are not thinking about the crick, I can tell you that. And uh, the other thing I did when I was in America, I, I had a pilot's licence, but in America, I got an endorsement as a as a sort of bush pilot. Uh, so I used to fly old aircraft, um, uh, biplanes, open cockpit biplane, or um, what a bush pilot planes, the sort that you land in clearings in forests and so on. And I learned how to do that, which is a very interesting um, way of flying, which is nothing like normal landing on runways. You you're, you're, you've got to have it very very finely tuned because otherwise it's it it can be um can be dangerous so i use that to relax myself uh, that, that that's i've not had anyone have that hobby to date <laughs> i'm sure you have uh, <laughs> so just just some quick fire questions yeah mac or pc person i'm I'm a mac but appalling <laughs> okay uh, are you an early bird or a night owl early bird by far okay uh Tea or coffee? Tea. Beer or wine? Um, actually both, but I know more about beer than wine, but I drink both. Red or white wine? Um, depend on the time of the evening. White at the beginning, red later. <clears throat> this sounds like a long evening that you could you can be having with the, the beer to the white to the red. I'm afraid it's true. It, there are often long evenings of that sort. Did you have a favourite beer? I um, I do have some favourite um, beers, actually. I When I was in Norwich, where I worked, um, I liked Adnams, which is a... a yep. Southwold. From Southwold. Oh, I see you're a beer person. No, I, 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 10 years in Essex, and we, okay. we love Norfolk and Suffolk, so... Yes, and I have to say this, because my one of my daughter's partner is a Theakstone, um, and was part of the Theakston family that ran the Theakston beer in Matham. Yep. And actually his father runs Black Sheep because they had the, the, the family had a bit of a split and had two breweries. And so I have to say I like Black Sheep too. Rig Welter is actually one of my favourites. So, and from Yorkshire, that, that's only the right thing to do, I think, at that point. Uh, is, yes. What's your favourite food? You know, I'm not as sophisticated in food. When people ask me what I'm cooking, I often say cornflakes because I um, don't do anything. Um, I am um, living in Birmingham and as a student with no money, I learned a lot about Indian food. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good on Indian food dishes, I have to say. Yeah, so obviously home of the ball tea in Birmingham. Well, uh, ball tea, of course, is a bit of an um, invention in this um, yes. In this country, I mean, it's not. In yeah, no. yeah, Birmingham, I think, was. A, yeah, from Birmingham, Birmingham, that's what I was going to say. Yes. Uh, what about. Uh, God, take me off track now. What about any foods you don't like? 
go to a conference to take you out for dinner and they it's a set menu and they put it in front of you go oh no you know i'm not a great fan of sushi i i feel i should get grown up and like it and i'm doing my best and it's it's beginning to grow on me but whereas everybody else says this is amazing i'm sort of saying well i wish it was cooked <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's raw fish more than anything kelsey it's just not somehow i'm not sophisticated enough <clears throat> tv or book book fact or fiction actually i tell you i have both always running at the same time what do you have at the moment i have hillary mantel's third um one uh the uh, um of you know the cromwell series and i um i'm reading ravelli's um latest um book um which is um all about heisenberg okay <clears throat> favorite movie i'm going to say the seventh seal it's a bergman film from the 50s okay I didn't know that one. And what about, uh, I, I should have asked this of all the guests and I haven't. Uh, favourite Christmas movie? These can sometimes be quite revealing. Oh my goodness. I'm not, this is awful. I'm not sure I have a favourite Christmas movie. I'm so sorry. I'm, um, I don't think. <clears throat> Did you ever have a, you, you've got two daughters. Did you ever sit down and watch a similar movie each year with them at Christmas? Um, I used to watch that is true we did of course watch the snowman with raymond briggs yeah. now i'm not sure it was my favorite film but it certainly was theirs and i did meet raymond briggs in fact I, we hired a cottage off him for a week about 40 years ago 30 years ago um but the snowman has is now transferred to my grandchildren <clears throat> okay uh, how many grandchildren four grandchildren three boys essentially five years age of age, two are twins, and one granddaughter of eight. Uh, fun ages. Sorry? Fun ages, and I hope you... Yes, they're very, very nice ages. Yes, very nice ages. I wouldn't say restful, though. Good, good to be at your grandparents. You can be around them when they're lively, and then, and then... I know, that's what everybody always says, but their parents always want to delay that particular part. And... Another favourite question I like to ask is, what is your favourite item of clothing? Well, you know, I, I they are accessories. Now, this is going to... Um, I, I was once phoned by a fashion editor from one of the heavy newspapers, and it, the fashion editor wanted to do um, a fashion piece and for some reason phoned me, um, phoned me up. And I found this so ridiculous because I'm a very scruffy person but i began to make fun of myself talking about it so i said i made because my body isn't suitable for cl uh, clothing really i i major on accessories and i sort of went into bags and hats and scarves and the fashion editor was so convinced by my uh, discussing this that she took it all seriously and i ended up on the fashion pages of the i think it was the times with um uh, benedict cumberpatch in fact the, the actor um who was have i got that right no i didn't quite get that right but um and of course he is a fashion icon but i certainly am not <clears throat> I, uh, how many years ago do i have to go and find that from you know it's it's it, it's not so long ago 10 years ago i i, I lost a bite-sized bite-sized team to try and find that one out because that sounds brilliant <laughs> 
It, 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 it's very, very funny. It is very, very funny. Everybody who knows me and knows me what a scrap bag I am, it always makes fun of me when they, or did when they saw it. So think, thinking of the, the Times, the newspaper, uh, I, I wouldn't associate you with someone who would be naturally a, a Times reader. Um, I do read the Times to see what the other side thinks. Um, I'm um, on the left. Um, some people might call me on the champagne left, I suppose. Um, but I've, all, I've been a Labour Party member for 40 years or longer now, um, nearly 50 years. Um, but I work with um, a range of, uh, of political opinions. And um, in recent years, um, nearly always with the Tory party. So I do get on well with a number of uh, those, um, not all members of the Tory party and the certain flanks and sectors. Yeah, I don't, don't worry. All, but many are doing their best and I may not agree with them all politically, but I, we work together and we work together well. So I've done a lot of that. So although I'm personally um, Labour left, I um, can work perfectly well with the more moderate um, part of the Tory party. Would you ever be tempted to become a politician? Um, in a job like this, you're always partly a politician, to be fair. Um, I don't think I find politics sufficiently interesting. If I can be honest with you, even running an institute and so on, although I, I'm really fired up by it, it doesn't compare with still doing research. So I still have a lab just through that wall. I have six graduate students, a couple of postdocs, and that's what fires me up still. I'm, I'm not saying I'm as, um, as able as I perhaps was 30 years ago, but it's still reasonably good. And that's what fires me up. And how much microscopy is your team doing? A, quite a lot. Um, not, not much high resolution, to be fair, but a lot of time lapse. I'm a geneticist, cell biologist, and there's all sorts of clever, and I work with yeast, and, and you can do amazing experiments with yeast, and you can ask um, fundamental questions, often rather simple questions, and get really clear answers, often quite difficult with more complex systems. So we do a lot of time lapse, um, a lot of um, analysis with colored proteins to measure levels and, and things of that sort, and combine that with the genetics. So we, we have a, a, a couple of pretty high-end microscopes in our microscope room. You're not using the core for this? We, they are core facilities. Actually, okay. I bought them on a grant. I, I'm actually fully grant funded because I thought I should leave from the front. So, but um, we bought two uh, microscopes in different grants over the years, but they are part of the core facility, but they're next to us. So if we're not using them, other people use them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect solution, I think. Uh, and, and actually, keeping on the science, you, you, you mentioned you're still in yeast and yeast is a really useful model. There will be some in the community saying, oh, really, are we still using Drosophila? Are we still using yeast? You know, why aren't we using mammalian systems? God, just just one minute, justify why yeast. I, I, I think I know the answer to this. But why mm. is yeast still so fundamentally important as a tool? Well, the first thing I'll say, people have been saying that to me since 1970. Why am I bothering to work with yeast? And I should say that four of the last 20 years Nobel Prizes have been awarded to yeast work. So that's something to think about. Why are we still using it? Because you can do the most beautiful experiments with great precision and come to very, very reliable answers. Working with mammalian cells is much, much more difficult. And you'll find that ideas and hypotheses 
change because of um, problems with the experiments. And we suffer much less from that with yeast because the experiments can be so rigorously carried out. So not just because you worked at the Guinness Brewery at some point and you know, all the yeast involved in that. There's a nice synergy. There's, there's, there's a thread going through here. There is. There is. Actually, I, I had an email just before we called from a, one of our leading yeast scientists who's just been funded by Wellcome Trust uh, for, for another three years, which is fantastic news, actually. I'm funded by the, I have an investigator award from the Wellcome Trust. I mean, um, so they fund uh, not quite all my work. I have a couple of other grants, but uh, they, they funded me since I came back from the US. Do you remember what your first microscope was? Um, the first microscope that I uh, remember, um, and I still have, I have two microscopes. I have a, um, a West German Zeiss photo microscope two, which you may <laughs> remember. And when they wanted to throw it out, I took it home and it's in my house, in my loft, because I spent so many hours looking down it. And then I had uh, something I called a, a plate microscope for looking at colonies of yeast on agar plates, so not even with cover slips and so on, which I bought from East German Zeiss. I, I was working in the University of Sussex, setting up my lab, didn't have much money, and um, I, I bought that from East German Zeiss, and I still have that one too. Um, it's just down the corridor here, um, and I'm, I'm keeping it. It'll go somewhere eventually. Um, and um, so it's two Zeiss microscopes, East German, West German. I asked you if you'd ever be a politician now, and you're, you're very much happy in your research scientist. At the age of, when you were a schoolboy, what did you want to be at that age? At sort of age 10 to 12, what was your ambition? Yes, so age 10, 12, I was thinking about what to do. And um, I, I did like literature. Um, I, I know that I can't speak foreign languages or anything, but I liked literature. And I like theatre in particular. And in fact, we didn't get onto all my hobbies, but I'm, in, I'm going to the theatre tonight, for example. Um, and so I did wonder about doing English and I did wonder about doing the sciences and biology. At the time, I was interested uh, in natural history um, and ecology. And I was thinking of going to university to do ecology, I have to say. And then when I did get to Birmingham, I only needed... Um, one major field trip to the Isle of Man in March in um, howling gale and rain when going out at 5 a.m. to when the tide was low to realize this wasn't what I wanted to do. So I abandoned ecology, um, partly because it was so cold, wet and miserable, partly because you couldn't do so easily controlled experiments. And so I gradually receded into thinking about cells as the simplest entity that you can truly say is alive and thinking about um, what is living and what it means to be alive. You just chose the easy life then? I chose the easy life. I wanted to have warm feet. And, uh, and dry feet too, and dry feet. What about your inspirations throughout your career? Have you got one or two inspirations or people who you, know, you look up to? Um, when I was a, a little older, still a schoolboy, 16, 17, um, I was a great admirer of the evolutionary biologist John Maynard Smith, who became 
the dean of the, the University of Sussex, where I also I got to know him quite well when I was there. And he was he was important at that time for me. And he wrote popular books on mainly on evolution. And I devoured those when I was 15, 16, 17. I think a little later in my life, um, my heroes were the great um, really molecular geneticists um, early on in the molecular biology revolution. I'm thinking of um, Jacob and Mono. I'm thinking of, um, uh, of Sidney Brenner and Francis Crick, for example, these sorts of characters who indeed carried out the most beautiful experiments. I mean, uh, to go back to that, often working with very simple organisms, bacteria, phage, viruses, and worked out the um, genetic code. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I, the, the next question, I realise we, we, we're on a time limit today. So when have you, what, what is the most fun time of your career? Well, my working career would be um, in, in, in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, when I um, um, devised um, working with yeast, with fission yeast, and searched for um, cell cycle mutants. So it was very directly connected to the problem I was interested in. I did a lot of screening using our East German Zeiss microscope to look for cell cycle mutants. I defined um, with colleagues, of course, maybe 30, or more um, cell cycle genes, and that was uh, that was very exciting. And then there was one particular experiment, which was when I, I was working in Edinburgh, and I discovered by accident, I wasn't looking for it, um, under the microscope, um, what I called a wee mutant. It was fission yeast cells that were dividing at a small size. And I hadn't imagined that before. I mean, the mutants I'd got were ones that couldn't divide, so they got very long and elongated and enlarged. And then it suddenly just, you know, within seconds of seeing this, I thought, this is a cell that is dividing early before it's grown enough. And that must mean it's altered in a control which is rate limiting for the whole cell reproductive process. So it probably means that this gene is defining the major rate limiting step of, of the cell cycle. Now, I'd, I'd never thought of that and to look for it, which is the way this is supposed to go. Yeah. I discovered it by accident and then went back and recreated that thinking. That's a gene I called WE1. And it, that did indeed do exactly what I just said. And um, the rest of uh, that part of my career was working out how that worked. Um, and to do that, I had to do the second exciting thing, which is develop again with colleagues, molecular genetics. I mean, how to um, clone genes, how to make libraries, how to gene edit, which was done in yeast in 1978, 1980. I did it for fission yeast, for example, uh, devised the techniques for doing that um, in, in Edinburgh, the late 70s. And that allowed um, these genes to be cloned. And then you could sequence them and find out what they did. It took, I remember, over a year to sequence one gene, if you can imagine that, over a year to sequence <laughs> one gene. People just can't imagine it now. And that eventually identified the control network that controlled cell cycle progression. It involves these cyclin-dependent kinases, CDKs, which were isolated in fission yeast and also in budding yeast um, initially. And so that was the second sort of period. Then the third one, which is in the 80s, 
was when people said, well, why are you bothering to work in yeast yet again? I get asked that question every five years. And um, I thought, well, I'd better see whether it's the same in humans. So I took the very first human cDNA library that had ever been made um, from Berg. He gave it to me within weeks of making it, I have to say, generously. It's very generous, often, science, I find. And I doctored it a bit to get it to work in fission yeast and sprinkled it basically on a mutant that was defective in this CDK gene and to see whether there was a gene in humans that could substitute for the gene in yeast, so to look for functional equivalence. Now, this was an experiment nobody expected to work. I, I was working in ICRF at Lincoln's Inn at the time because yeast and humans diverged certainly a billion years ago, probably um, one and a half, 1,500 million years ago. And I was demanding that the genes remain conserved for 1,500 million years. I mean, you, you, unbelievable time. But it did work. And Melanie Lee, who was working in my lab, um, isolated the human gene. We sequenced it. It had remarkable sequence identity, despite that divergence. And so those were my most enjoyable three occasions, all of which were sort of advances of a certain sort, which compensated for the many failures that go on in between. I was going to say, of course, if that hadn't succeeded, how things could have been different? Completely. I had a lot of luck in everything I've done. A lot of luck. But it sounds like you also had the failures in between, as, as all labs do have failures in between. And just failures. And, you know, I, I have quite a number of students. I enjoy looking after students. I talk a lot with them every day, really. And the main thing you, you see, undergraduates are taught the best experiments that have ever been done. And they think they will go in the lab and do them. And the first thing they have to learn is they won't. And most of the experiments they do, if you're at the cutting edge, will fail. And so you end up not just being a supervisor, but a um, almost a psychiatrist to just keep people going in those difficult times. Well, actually, one thing I was going to comment on, we are, we are really short on time now, is all the offices at Crick are, are glass window doors, top to bottom glass, which uh, actually when those students crash, uh, they, they get very upset. And actually, I'm, so actually, our, our offices, I have a blind so I can pull down. So actually, they can just pour out yeah. when, when things are bad. Well, yes. So I, I, you're quite right. It's full of glass. Um, and you do have to deal with people when they're sometimes upset. Um, I actually take them out into our public place onto our sofa and people are very discreet and they know something's not working if that happens. Um, but the plus of it is, in the cricket, it's more difficult to behave badly as a consequence of that. And, you know, with the um, increased interest in research culture and um, these sorts of issues, um, if you're, as we are, you can't see quite, well, you can see behind me, constantly on show, then I hadn't realised that. But that does, I think, make people think twice before they lose their temper or say things that are not appropriate so um you're right people find it difficult to cry in private but they also find it difficult to shout as well and uh one one final question yeah the future what's yeah. the next big challenge that we have to embrace in the scientific world well for me politically um which is not the question you asked but i'll come to your question in a moment um about scientifically um for me 
um, it is trying to do my best to um, for society to recognize that science, research and development are key for the future of humankind in all respects. And we have to have a vibrant research culture, um, hopefully connected well with Europe, for example. And I do, in wearing my political hat, have quite a lot of, uh, of, of work to do in that area. You were actually asking me, however, what is the science question? Well, it, it's very simple for me. We work on a cell. It's the simplest entity, I've said this already, that, that clearly can be said to be alive. And I think the big problem for at least my area of biology is what does it mean to be alive? How does that cell work? How does it actually produce something that is living? And that makes you focus on the fundamental problems of life, not just the nitty gritty ones, but to focus on what is life and how we can work out um, how it operates. And that's the big question. And I think it is addressable with the amazing techniques we have, including microscopy, the amazing genetics we have, uh, the amazing ability um, to use um, information approaches, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on, to address these problems. And I think it's a very exciting time to address what seems a simple problem. What does it mean to be a cell and how does it work? Paul, on that note, I, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you everyone who's watched or listened to the microscopist today with Paul. Uh, please do subscribe to the channels uh, to listen to the future ones and go back and see those previously. But Paul, your time's really precious and it's been tremendous talking to you. Actually, we should do this again. So I've still got half, a, I've still got another half a session to go with you on this. There's quite a lot of information that I haven't teased out yet. But Paul, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure talking to you, Peter, and I'm very happy to have another conversation whenever you like. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.